Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thanks for joining us in this episode of Pharmacy Hot Topics, where we sit down with our experts and discuss what is currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. My name is Erin Sherwin, ambulatory care pharmacist and member of the ASHP Special Advisory Group on Medication Management Services. And joining me for today's episode is Dr. Courtney Redwing, currently a contracting pharmacist on the Navajo Reservation, and Dr. Rebecca McGee, clinical pharmacist for North Country Healthcare in Flagstaff, Arizona. Today, we'll be talking about pharmacy services and experiences in Indigenous and tribal facilities. Welcome, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you. So I am Becky McGee, and I got my start working in Indigenous healthcare in school, actually, when I was doing a rotation in my final year of pharmacy school out at Crown Point, New Mexico, and definitely changed the trajectory of my career. And as soon as I graduated, I left home and moved to Alaska, where I worked for eight years for a tribal organization in Ketchikan, and then relocated down to Flagstaff, Arizona, working for Tuba City Regional Healthcare Corporation for four more years. And during that time, I commissioned into the public health service and have since moved on to North Country, which is a federally qualified health center and a safety net organization for marginalized communities. Awesome. Thank you. And for Courtney, how did you come to be interested in IHS and how long have you been or been in that setting? My name is Courtney. I'm one of the pharmacists that uh, has been working, I guess, pretty much my whole career in Indian health services. But I got interested in Indian health services. Um, I have a background in I guess my Native American culture. So I've known about Indian health services pretty much my whole entire life, not so much in my younger years, but of course later in life. And then as my uh, career and going into pharmacy school. So I've known about Indian health services for quite some time. Um, And I've been working as a pharmacist for about 10 years now. I graduated in 2013. So I started my career in Indian health services and that's kind of where I'm at right now. Yeah, and so what is IHS exactly? So IHS stands for Indian Health Services. Indian Health Services was a branch that was set aside by the Congress, like back in, you know, the early 1900s, set aside specifically to care for the Native people, to promote health, well-being, um, and education, actually, in the Native American people. This is actually a treaty rate that was set aside and a promise from the federal government to provide care and promotion of, I guess, life of the Native people. So that's kind of how it came to be. Of course, it's went through multiple changes, but this is something that the federal government has essentially promised Native American people, at least from my understanding, and that's kind of where we're at again. And how do IHS facilities differ across the system, and how are they similar? So this, I feel like everybody wants to know like a simple answer of how they work, but it's not that straightforward, I would say. There's a lot of variability between sites, especially when you get into federally operated facilities versus tribally operated facilities. I feel like people want like one simple answer that covers all of them. (laughs) And that doesn't unfortunately exist, but (laughs) there's a lot of variability. So just because 
one site uses e-prescribing doesn't mean another site will, or just because one site has something on their formulary and available to their patients does not mean that another site will. And so it can be really frustrating when you're outside of the system and trying to, to work with IHS facilities at times. It can be kind of confusing for people. Yeah, and so I think for a lot of us, some of us may have heard or have worked in IHS. I know I did a rotation, an appy rotation as a student on the Tona Odom Nation, but tribal healthcare sounds like something a little bit different. Like, is it part of IHS or is it different? I think that could probably be confusing for some people. So if you don't mind, I'd like to elaborate on that. So Indian Health Services was set up, like I said, earlier in the uh, 1900s, specifically designed for the government oversight. Um, of the health of the, of the Native people and, of course, the progress of the Native people, as well as the promotion of culture and the preservation of culture. In terms of tribal facilities, and this is where things get a little bit different, tribal facilities, I think it was in the 70s or maybe even just early as early as the 1990s, that is where the Indian law was changed, or I guess I should say was opened up. Um, and they call it tribal, tribal sovereignty, where that was opened up and they allowed tribal nations to come in and take over their own care and take over their own ability to manage that care. And of course, this was the long-term goal of Indian Health Service. This was the long-term goal in promoting you know, the people of taking responsibility for their own people and pushing and educating um, the Native people to kind of really move into those professional positions. And so this was just another piece as we're kind of going through the motions of what they kind of wanted in the long term. And so that's really where tribal entities kind of came up and they did sever in terms of it's not an Indian health facility, but it is. Um, and really what it boils down to is the pot, the pot of money that it comes out of. So Indian Health Services has a specific amount of money that is given to them to provide these services. Now, back when this law was first established, Congress set how much they wanted according to when they wanted it. And there was no set price. There was no set budget. Sometimes they said yes. Sometimes they said no. Indian Health Service would submit a budget, of course, to their area director, which, of course, at that time, way back then, was under the Interior Secretary of State, which, of course, as laws have changed, have now come to the Department of Health and Human Services, which kind of leads into our next question about public health and how that all kind of comes into play with all of this as well. So yeah, that portion of it, the money is still there. The money that gets sent into Indian Health Service is still there. And they've labeled these tribal entities under that portion as well. And I was just reading recently that actually 60% of all of the money that is used in Indian Health Services, a lot of times gets designated and is used by tribal services. And tribal services actually make up a majority of the services that are out there now that that law has changed and now that you know the tribes are going after their sovereignty rights of being able to open and run their own healthcare facilities. So um, that's a little bit that I know. Thank you so much for giving some of that extra context. I think that's a really important way that they differ, but also a way that they seem intertwined as well. And so how would you guys say pharmacy practice is different in IHS or tribal settings compared to other pharmacy practice settings that are maybe public or private outside of the government or IHS? I think it's hard to draw generalizations across all of these sites. But that being said, having worked at a couple... I feel like working in the Indian Health Service tends to be more quality driven versus like revenue driven. 
in the private sector. It's not always the case. And I think that revenue is being able to retrieve revenue is becoming more and more important across these IHS sites because they've realize that if they can collect more revenue, then they can provide more services. So it gets reinvested in the community, which is great. Um, so it is becoming more important, but I think that there's just less pressure to make money for like a CEO somewhere or something. It's more about quality, providing quality care and hitting some quality outcomes and metrics. I think Becky definitely hit it on the head. I guess from my experience, it is about quality. So, and and actually that's the expectation, I guess, from my own personal view, my own understanding of healthcare and my own culture, actually, it is about quality. So we're trying to preserve the life of Native people because of the health disparities that are out there and everything that's going on in the communities. You know, we have, I think it was, I read 19 years in life expectancy. So we have less, you know, we're, we're losing 20 years of our life compared to other people in the, in the United States. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, health problems, um, the lack of culture. And if we wanted to go all the way back, what we're finding as well is that the break in culture and, and the trauma, and I'm sure we always, all that's all we hear about is historical trauma, historical trauma, historical trauma, because it's still there. And that's something that goes all the way up. And they're finding now that it's causing long-term health consequences in people and not just the native people and all people that develop trauma, you know? So it does come down to quality when it comes to IHS. And that's, what's great about IHS is because we have the opportunity as health healthcare providers and professionals to really kind of go after any area of healthcare and providing that as that we want. I mean, that's almost the goal again of IHS. That's why they put out so many grants, so many um, educational pieces. I mean, if you go onto the IHS website and want to gather information, I mean, there's tons of information out there um, about the services that can be offered. And that's one thing that's really, really great and, and definitely different than you know other healthcare settings. And if I could add to that, I think that, like, I personally feel really lucky to have experienced working in the Indian Health Service so early in my career, just because because it is quality driven versus revenue driven, I feel like, and and you are often in, working in these places, right, that are super rural, um, that have very limited resources, very limited access to higher levels of care. So what happens is the the people that they have, the staff that they have, tend to wear a lot of hats and really have a very unique opportunity to sort of push the envelope of their scope of practice, I would say. And I feel like, you know, looking back in the first few years of my career, some of the things I did, I was like, how did I get chosen to do that strange <laughs> task? It's fantastic for learning and sort of just expanding your own, you know, circle of comfort, what, you, what you're comfortable doing and trying things that you might not have anticipated doing when you started your pharmacy education. <laughs> yeah, I definitely can say I got at least a little bit of a taste of all of those things you mentioned on my Appy rotation. I, I feel really fortunate to have had that opportunity. You kind of said something leading back to this, but if I don't practice at an IHS facility, like myself, I currently don't, um, but I'm co-managing a patient who does, or I have a patient who might qualify for those services, how do I get them plugged in? So in most cases, patients have to register at that local clinic. So they usually have to go in and fill some paperwork and, and get registered. There's generally, there's varying requirements, right? So to be considered eligible 
for care at a site is it's really determined by by that local governance right so it could be they may need a variety of paperwork and things like that but in general it's usually pretty easy to go in say i want to register for cares and fill out the paperwork and, and get on their roster so yeah like i'd like to add a few things in here so actually this happens more frequently than you would know and almost every person that utilizes indian health services at some point utilizes an outside facility. There's a couple of different reasons as to why this happens. And so a lot of people are already connected. And I think that's what Becky was trying to get at. They're already connected into the system, especially if they were born on the reservation or near a reservation or utilizing any type of services. So mental health services, um, pharmacy services, medical services, behavioral health services, whatever, they're already kind of in there. So it's kind of a little bit of knowledge that I understand, I guess, from things um, the law says, again, laws were changed when Indian Health Services was established. And in terms of reimbursement to these Indian Health Services, the federal government has pretty much made a government to government agreement that they would pretty much pay for all services. OK, so here in Arizona, a lot of people are already kind of tapped into Indian Health Services or they're tapped into that Medicaid if they can't you know, afford private insurance. And that actually allows them to receive services off of the reservation but definitely allows the reservation to get, re, you know, those Indian health services or 638s to get reimbursed for their services, obviously. So this happens a lot for people that live off reservation. Maybe they have private insurance and they're getting some, you know, services at the Indian health services. And then they're going to say, see Becky at, you know, as at their primary care provider over there at North Country, which is a private facility. So that really, how would I say that? That connection altogether really is dependent upon the ability of that patient to have insurance. So here in Arizona, what's really neat is Medicaid has specifically set up their own access plan for Indian Health Services because they know, and I mean, everybody knows that whatever services are, are paid for or rendered to be paid will get paid back in full 100%. So the states haven't taken it upon themselves to offer that help through their state services through the federal government because the federal government is going to reimburse all of that. So what's really great about down here in the healthcare services and the Indian health services and the tribal services for that matter is there's a variety of resources, a variety of money that can go back and forth and a variety of care providers that, that can be split up into. So that makes it definitely interesting as well. So, but not all of Indian health services, not all area sites are like that. So, you know, you think about the progress that's being made in Arizona, you got to remember the population of Native Americans in Arizona Arizona is huge. That's why you see as much as you see. And that's why you see them making those extra steps. And other states, like I just came from an Indian health service up in the Great Plains area, they just had Medicare expansion. So that was just voted in actually last November. And from what I've read about, you know, some of the things that they're planning on doing, they aren't planning on making any changes to their process of applying for Medicaid services. Okay. So a lot of our, you know, populations on the reservation are, we'll say it, they're poor. All right. The poverty rate is very, very high. The unemployment rate is super duper high. And a lot of people qualify for these services that the state has agreed with the federal government to provide. But access to these services has always been the issue and access to the services always appears to be the issue. Arizona has been the best place I've ever seen. I can't speak for Alaska. I'd love to hear what Becky's opinion is on 
the services up there. But as you were talking, I guess, about the cross services, you know, there's a whole actual area in Indian Health Services that allows for payment if the patient doesn't have you know, Medicaid, private insurance or whatnot, that allows them to go to these other facilities that are not IHS. And this actually happens very, very frequently, especially in service units um, where there isn't as much uh, availability of, of specialized providers. And so you, they end up sending these people all over the place. But again, if they're starting out in that area and you can get them back to their service unit, um, that's really kind of almost the best way to start. Unfortunately, when you live off res, which is a majority of, of the Native Americans, um, I shouldn't say that, there's a good chunk of, of Native Americans that do live off res. You know, obviously there was a point to that. But when you bring them back to their service unit, sometimes there's a lot of, of jumping through hoops because they don't they don't want to bring them back. So sometimes it's tough. There's there's a very, very fine balance and and knowing if you decide to go work in Indian Health Service, knowing all of the ins and outs um, to help patients is super duper important because there's so many programs, there's so many different opportunities, um, but nobody knows about them. And that's kind of where we, you know, as healthcare professionals get the opportunity to kind of dig in um, as we're seeing it on the surface as well. I would just add that if you are an outside provider of services and you have a patient that is eligible for Native American benefits, healthcare benefits, Generally, they're going to need to be referred from their home clinic in order for payment to be rendered. And usually those sites will go ahead and cover referred services as long as those services are not things that are already offered at that facility. So if a facility has behavioral health services, they're probably not going to pay for a patient to see an outside behavioral health office, right? So I think in looking at it from the perspective of an outside provider, that's something to just kind of be aware of. For some of our listeners who may be familiar with this, it it does sound really similar to the VA, Veterans Health Administration, um, and getting those patients plugged in. I would put them, yeah, neck and neck. Yep, neck and neck. They're almost exactly Okay, so do you see more or less of certain disease states on the reservation compared to the rest of the U.S.? Um, You've touched a lot on some of these disparities, but when it comes to some specific disease states that we might see, is there anything out there that we should know about? Diabetes all day long (laughs) is really tough. And that's really what I do entirely right now is, is diabetes management. It's very difficult and there's a lot of Courtney mentioned historical trauma and food insecurity. It's a real tangled mess. So it can be a little bit heartbreaking to see at times. So I guess what I've seen, she hit the nail on the head there, diabetes all day long. My personal opinion, I guess, about that is, you know, as Native American people, we're allergic to sugar. We can't process it the way that we're supposed to because we didn't have sugar. You know, we were big meat eaters. And so our body can't really process things like that. And the, you know, what we're seeing now is that traditional move back to more traditional foods. A big push on some reservations are the get up and move, the powwow, you know, aerobics, getting people going and moving it and really going again back to what we believe in our culture um, to help us with our health and not just our physical health, but our mental health, our emotional health and our spiritual health as well. First, what I also see, of course, is high blood pressure issues. There's quite a bit of uh, blood pressure, stroke, cardiovascular issues, but that leads into, you know, these, we have a predetermined 
I guess our sense of <laughs> our, our foods are different. Everything's completely different. And you got to, you know, keep things in perspective too, when you're talking about the population that we're serving, because we're talking only a hundred years ago, maybe 200 years ago, we were doing things completely different than what we are doing now. And so it's completely affected everything to the max. But what's really neat, I guess, about Indian health services is the ability to hone in on these disease states. And so Becky knows a lot about this stuff because she's worked a lot in those clinics and provided straight direct care. And that's where IHS is so different, especially if you're a pharmacist going into Indian health services. You know, doctors are able to prescribe and do all those things and, and take care of patients anyway. Pharmacists don't really ever get that opportunity very often unless they're seeking ambulatory care, of course. But you come to work in an Indian health facility in some way, shape or form, you're going to take on that role whether you want to or not. Wow. Yeah, I remember even just the month I spent on uh, the reservation, there were diabetes was the majority of what we saw. And I also remember seeing a lot of rheumatologic diseases as well. And it seemed like some of the research that we did over there, I had to do a presentation on gluten intolerance and kind of led me down a rabbit hole of the Western diet, the colonizer diet, and how it's affected a lot of those conditions as well. I totally agree with that. A lot of autoimmune diseases. And what's sad about that is that all these drug studies they're not including large numbers of indigenous populations, right? So I definitely think there's something going on with autoimmune disorders in indigenous populations, but we just don't have the research. Yeah, that's so interesting and just continues to highlight those disparities. So kind of going back to the way that the health system works, and I feel like you've kind of already answered this with the description just of the services in general, but do patients pay anything for their services or medications? So Indian Health Services, no. You know, whether actually, and that's actually been made um, specifically and set up in the law as well. So you have co-pays if you have private insurance. If you go to an Indian Health Services, you don't have to pay those co-pays because that's set up in the law. You know, if you have Medicaid and you go, you get your services, you don't have to pay the co-pays that Medicaid would you know, require you to pay. You get your medications, I guess, in terms of pharmacy and services for that matter. And then if you don't have insurance, you can still be provided because again, like I said earlier, that's a treaty right. That is a right of ours that the federal government established in the 1800s. You know? So this is something definitely, no matter what, you're able to get the services you need as long as you're a beneficiary. The hard part about the beneficiary portion and registering as a Native American and all of that jazz is that's really specific from the people that you come from and that can change. And so a lot of people don't really understand what that means. You know, a lot of people will be like, oh, well, I have my own pedigree kind of thing, or they're kind of watching us. But really, it, it's not even necessarily that because there are other, are other services and some service units actually that will allow help with some descendants as well. So again, boils back down to the whole meaning of IHS, which was to promote the health and well-being of our you know, indigenous populations, to educate them and help them to take care of themselves, essentially. Yeah, that's amazing. And honestly, going into the next question, we might even be able to cut it because I think it's kind of already been answered. So can Native patients still get Medicaid and Medicare? Yes. I'm a big proponent of that. Like, I think that, I do think that IHS does a great job at providing care at individual sites and referring out for more specialized care when that's not something that's available locally. But I think that there's always going to be some restrictions, right? So sites are going to have formularies and how strictly they're going to adhere to that formulary depends on the site. Um, so if you're interested on something that's not on their formulary, 
you might have a better chance of getting access to it if you have outside insurance or um, Medicare or Medicaid. I think that's a big misconception for a lot of people, too, because I know, I guess, from some of the people that I talked at the service unit that I was at before, you know, they had previous administrators that were heavy on the, this is our treaty, right? Um, instead of really looking at it from a Medicare and Medicaid perspective, I mean, like she said, that there's a lot of people that qualify for these these services. And I know in some places, some tribes have even looked at paying the Medicaid premiums to allow for them, you know, patients, because they can't even afford the premium sometimes too. So just to be able to allow that they can get what they need, especially in those sites where the remoteness and the availability of professionals is so limited that they know that these patients are going to need PRC or purchase referred care and to be you know, sent out to an outside provider. Um, so it definitely 100% benefits and protects their people as well to, you know, offer them and make sure that they have that. So it's not in, in their own benefit, but for the benefit outside and to the protection of the person themselves. So I know some tribes have tried to do that. They're trying to set up their own insurance programs. They're trying to work with getting everybody covered that they can, at least those that live on the reservation, working, you know, with other insurance companies to bring in things. Um, so there's kind of a variety, but when it comes to Medicaid and Medicare, it's a right. If you qualify for that, you're doing a benefit to your health, you know, your Indian health service. If you're utilizing them for your care, because you're helping getting them, you know, that reimbursement that they need um, to be able to open up the services all together. What a great note on access. Why would patients want or need to get insured if they already get all services for free? Yeah. So just like Courtney said earlier too, so people don't have to get Medicare or Medicaid, but it's generally to their benefit, I would say, just in case they do need something that is not readily available or, or accessible or on a formulary or tied up in some red tape through the Indian Health Service, they're able to access that from outside clinics. But also, even if they only ever get care at their home site, if they have insurance like Medicare or Medicaid, that clinic can then bill for the services rendered and recoup some of the cost of providing that service. And that that revenue then can be reinvested in that local community. For example, in Alaska, the clinic that I worked with, they did collect revenue when they could, and they had some really great educational programs, um, vocational programs for Native beneficiaries. They had a really great like lunch, a free lunch during the day for their elders. So they had a lot, they had a really huge behavioral health program. They had a really great housing, um, housing assistance for a lot of their tribal members. So the revenue that, that they make goes back into funding these other programs, uh, social and educational programs. So it is helpful if you're a native beneficiary and you're debating whether or not to get additional insurance, even if you don't take that insurance to an outside clinic, it does help your home site. I think for a lot of us who work outside of the government, uh, maybe in more of a academic medical center or community health center, um, or maybe those of us who work at FQHCs as well, federally qualified health centers. 
who benefit from 340B drug pricing, which has been on the news a lot lately and been a focus of AHP's advocacy work. Those sound a lot like those benefits. So you're able to give the medications to people at a lower cost, but the revenue that you get from billing people's insurance allows us to pour that revenue into the community that really needs it. That's exactly right. That's exactly how it, it works very, very similarly. That's awesome. And so for our final question, to start wrapping everything up um, all neatly, do you serve patients who cannot speak English? And kind of piggybacking off of that, I think a lot of our listeners would be really interested in some of the cultural differences and cultural priorities that you might see in IHS. Down here in Navajo Nation, you know, and I, I just want to make sure that I preface all of this stuff with these are just my opinions and my experiences. So I'm not an expert in Indian Health Service. I'm not an expert in Native American people. I'm, I'm not a voice for the Natives or anything like that. This is just my own understanding of my own culture, of how I care for people, and my understanding of the kind of care that I think that my people deserve. And I say my people being Native Americans, obviously. So in terms of culture-wise, down here in particular, we have a great revitalization of the language here in Navajo Nation, you know, a lot of people speak the language. A lot of elders don't speak any English at all. And so they were able to really, really preserve their culture. And that definitely, you see that providing services to the patients here because, you know, they can't speak English. So how am I supposed to give them the information that I need? How am I supposed to relate to where they're at and and what's going on? And so down here in particular, there's a really big force of individuals that do that interpreting for us. They're medical interpreters here in Arizona. There's, they're very big about pushing that medical interpretation, getting people trained in medical terminology and those so that we can speak with them. Um, not everybody has that access, but also the other tribes aren't as rich in the, I shouldn't say that, they may not be as rich in their culture in terms of language and have that ability where that is their primary language. This is the only place that I have seen where it's so abundant. Yeah, and I think I would just add that I have definitely had uh, non-English speaking patients, and I think it's more of a um, issue here in the Southwest, in my limited experience, than it ever was for me in Alaska. For a lot of the Southeast Alaska tribes, unfortunately, their language is definitely dying off. And there's definitely lots of pushes to reinvigorate that and bring it back to their young people. It is kind of, so thinking about it, like I wish there were more (laughs) native language speakers where I was at in Alaska. And it does seem like it's more alive and well down here in the Southwest, which is good and bad (laughs) because I am not native and I do not speak any native languages. So sometimes finding interpreters can be tricky. And I do feel really strongly that we should be able to provide care in a language that our patients are comfortable with and fully understand and all the the nuance that it involves. But um, yes, unfortunately, we do have to sort of work with what we have available. I will say that when I was at Crown Point, I'll never forget, I had this lady who was quite old and she was trying to, uh, <laughs> they required that all patients who got prescriptions would be counseled. It was a requirement. Everybody knew about it. There was no arguing. You just, you had to wait for the pharmacist. You had to get counseled on your prescription. 
and sometimes the waits would be long and people could get tired. And so one time I was in a room with this lady who was probably 107 years old and, <laughs> and I was, you know, doing my thing. Oh, your name is Jane Doe. Yes. She says, and I say, Oh, your birthday is five, six of 35. She says, yes. And I say, okay, well, what can I do for you today? And she says, yes. <laughs> I was like, oh darn it <laughs> you're tricking me and I say you don't speak English do you <laughs> and she would giggle she giggled like she was so close to getting one over on me <laughs> and I was gonna you know say my piece and and let her go but no I figured it out and so I had to call the translator to come in and everything so I would say in for terms of like just you know cultural competency do not make assumptions. <laughs> Don't underestimate the power of open-ended questions, even when you're just confirming someone's identity, I would say. I would also say every culture is different and even, you know, people within those cultures, the variability is endless, right? And it, you can't really generalize, nor should we, I guess, but it has really been like a pleasure in my career to just sort of be exposed to other perspectives and the humor. I think, I don't know, Courtney, if you have a differing opinion, but I feel like especially a lot of the Native Americans in the Southwest, they have really taught me all about humor <laughs> and not taking myself too seriously. <laughs> if I can, I'd like to add in, you know, from my own perspective, I guess, as my own my own culture, I view everything as medicine. So she brings up humor, you know, in a lot of Native American cultures, humor is a medicine. It is what helps lighten the mood. It's what help it, you know, helps bring that heaviness off of us. And so we recognize that in our culture and we use it quite a bit. So you'll definitely see that used even in, and sometimes I'm not gonna lie, it's inappropriate, you know. Um, and and you're you're looking like, wow, that didn't that came from way off field and you don't expect that at all almost to the point where you're taken back. But in our ways, it's just humor. We don't mean it in any disrespectful way. We don't mean it in, you know, any way that would be derogatory or anything, unless we do, you know, and in cases where we do, you would know. Um, and so, yeah, definitely humor is one piece that is definitely a medicine that we carry with us inside of us. And and we feel like we know it and everybody has that. And so it's also something, you know, when you're trying to build that connection with the community that you're serving, if you decide to come to work for an Indian health service, it's really important that you do get that cultural competency, that you do have a clear understanding of what's respectful and what's disrespectful. I have a great example. I was working, you know, at a hospital and, and this nurse, we, you know, we're serving some Native Americans and this nurse moves really fast. And I think that's great. You know, most nurses do. But you can't run into an, a room with an elder and start giving demands. And, oh, we got to do this and this and this and this. No, it's completely disrespectful. And she wasn't even aware of that. So, you know, I had to slow her down and say, hey, when you come in and you're working with our elders, you don't run around them. You know, if they don't look up at you, it's not because they didn't hear what you said or they're being disrespectful. That's our ways. And so when you come in and you run around and you're, you know, getting them up fast and getting them dressed quick and getting them into the shower, that's rude. And it's disrespectful to us as we run on our own time, on our own rhythm of life. And that's different for everybody, right? So if you don't have that respect, and we're very in tune to that as Native people, at least I am anyway, um, and if you don't have that respect for that, to recognize that we're different and to slow down to work with me, how are you expecting me to even engage with you to accept your help 
and to accept your care at all. You know, so there's definitely some huge cultural competencies that can be established and educating our people and bringing and you know what they are. And that's what's really great. You know, I've even learned some stuff when I went to another service unit about why people are the way that they are questions that I had been asking in my own brain for years, trying to put a piece into why is it when we tell them your A1C is 11, they still don't do anything about it. What is going on? What is the challenges? Are they dumb? You know, like these are all the questions that you're thinking because you're like, I explained myself the best possible way that I could explain myself. What is going on? What are, you know, why are they choosing to, to not listen? Why are they choosing not to do these things? And sometimes it's cultural and recognizing that. Sometimes it's cultural and maybe they aren't taking their insulin because at one of the service units I worked at, or I should say I did a rotation at, the population had it in their brain that when you start insulin, you die. Now, why would they have that in their brain is how I think about it, right? What's going on? Well, they're starting their insulin. Their A1C has been 15 for 20 years. They've already got renal issues, eye issues, cardiovascular issues. Now they're finally getting ready to use that insulin. They use it. And then they shortly thereafter have medical issues that cause them to pass. So this is a very true fear thought. Sometimes it's, you know, part of their culture. It's how they think about things. And, you know, a lot of what we do in, as Native people is we listen to our, our relatives we listen to grandma, we listen to grandpa, we listen to auntie, we listen to our cousins. And when our cousins say, oh, when I took that med, it made me really, really loopy. Oh, guess what? I ain't taking that med. Nope, not going to even kind of sort of. And so you got to be cognizant of that too, because it's a very different understanding from, you know, English or American culture. It's just completely different. And so I always like to make sure that people understand when they're coming in to IHS, that it is a necessity to have passion and compassion for the people that you're serving because we're already struggling with enough. The, the poverty rates are so high. Again, the disparities are so high. The suicide rate is so high. The alcoholism, the drug addiction, the lack of just peer education. I mean, I was listening to some reviews, I guess, on, on the, the state of certain reservations. And you know, one of them was talking about just the high school the high school dropout rate, actually, they were calling it the graduation rate. <laughs> and they said, you know, what, 50%, 50% is their graduation rate. And I was happy that they were happy. I think that's great. Wonderful. You know, at least that we have that 50%. But that means 50% did not graduate. So they don't have the basic education. And then we were talking about health literacy and, you know, even more advanced um, going on. You know, there's just, you got to recognize that as, as well, too, because I don't want to say it's a part of our culture, but it is. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you can extend a lot of that too, to the BIPOC community in general. I've noticed a lot of those same things that you've mentioned. So BIPOC, Black and Indigenous people of color, such important cultural considerations and cultural competency when it comes to a past distrust of the health system, a reliance in a good way on the things that the community have seen and heard, but that have to be taken into consideration when you're providing uh, medication counseling, managing disease states and things like that. I also kind of wanted, we're, we're running kind of close on time here, but I remember on my rotation, we were able to make a referral to a natural medicine, some sort of elder or specialized person in tribal medicine that we could put in a referral for. That was something different. We don't get to see outside of IHS. 
Yeah, that's one thing that um, I've seen a couple of health centers that offer that. I know in the past, and I'm not sure if they still have that or with COVID things changed, but in the past, you know, Chuba City had their own actually administration that was for, you know, spiritual health. Um, because again, we're looking at everything, all of it. We're looking at mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual health. And that's really what ultimately is going to bring everything back to the way it's supposed to be and, and continue to help us. Yeah, awesome. All right. Well, that's all the time that we have today. I want to thank Dr. McGee and Dr. Redwing for joining us today to discuss tribal pharmacy services. If you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ASHP's online resources. You can find member-exclusive offerings such as the Preceptor Toolkit, the Research Resource Center, and more. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Hot Topics in Pharmacy. And if you enjoyed today's conversation, be sure to subscribe to the ASHP official podcast for more great content. Thank you guys so much for your time today. This was a pleasure. I learned a lot. Thank you. Hey, thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to ASHP official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.